Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome everyone to another edition of Girl Power Hour. Uh, it is Wednesday. I always have to check myself. Sometimes I have these special shows on special days and times and it throws me off. It is Wednesday, 3 p.m. Central, and I'm coming to you from the West Texas area. I have a very special guest on today, and as you know, it, it is Desiree Attaway. I, ha- I say that, uh, as you know, because I've been, uh, if you follow the Girl Power Hour page, I've been raving about this a bit <laughs> quite often. I'm uh, very excited to have her on. But before we get started, um, I wanted to make a few quick announcements. Of course, another show day that's going to throw me off. I have, a, I have a show coming up this Saturday, March 11th at 1 p.m. Central. Again, I'm going to be hosting this special edition on a special day in time for uh, a very special guest who needed that little bit of accommodation, uh, Deportia Rufus. She is the author of Your Book from God. She's going to be talking to us about the book and her message for all of us, so be sure to tune in, set your calendars for that, since it is a day that we normally don't have shows and uh, it's totally different time as well, this Saturday, March 11th at 1 p.m. Central. And again, that is Deportia Rufus, author of Your Book from God. And then... Uh, originally, we had scheduled, uh, so this is a change of plans, make sure that you're taking note. Uh, originally, we had scheduled Isabel Abbott for next Wednesday, March 15th. However, she contacted me just a bit before the show today and let me know that for health reasons, that she's okay, but send all your healing energy her way. Uh, but just for health reasons, she, is, she has not been feeling well, so she is not going to be able to be on the show next Wednesday and has rescheduled it for March 29th. So we are moving Isabel Abbott to Wednesday, March 29th at 3 p.m. Central. And again, just in the meantime, send off some uh, awesome healing, loving energy her way and uh, hope for a quick and speedy recovery. And then, of course, of course, uh, March 22nd, I will have Valerie Green back on the show. That one stays the same. And it's she's a relationship coach. This is a call-in show again I've been offering to you. Uh, she's going to be returning in April as well, so stay tuned for that. But this is an opportunity for you to call in and get free relationship advice. Free relationship advice. That's invaluable <laughs> stuff. Anytime you can get anything free, especially from a professional like Valerie Green, who is an amazing relationship coach. And if you want more information from her, you can go to her website, coachvaleriegreen.com. Now, I want to get to our guest today because I want to give her as much time as possible because she has amazing information for us, and I'm so excited to have her on, Desiree Attaway. Hello, Desiree. Hey, how are you? I'm so good. I'm so grateful to have you on. I want to give the listeners just a quick little synopsis of of what you do and and what I know that you do, but then I'm going to turn it over to you and let you talk to us. Um, The listeners get to hear me enough. Desiree, in case you don't know, uh, is a seasoned nonprofit consultant and facilitator. She is a principal of the Attaway Group. And if you're not familiar with the Attaway Group, go to the website. It's DesireeAttaway.com. So D-E-S-I-R-E-E, Attaway, A-D-A-W-A-Y.com. And you can find this on the Girl Power Hour Facebook page or if you're listening to the show and um, you're tuning in via the little link, you'll be able to see it there too because it's in the bio. Um, she has over 20 years' experience in creating, leading, and managing international multicultural teams through major organizational changes in over 40 countries. Uh, And she she has had so many, like, career highlights. I'm I'm looking through this woman's information, and it just blows my mind, amazing, all the things that she's done. Um, She was the Senior Director of Volunteer Mobilization for Habitat for Humanity International, um, at, Rotary Inter- at Rotary International, she served as the director 
of their largest humanitarian grants program. I mean, this is amazing that you're even on the show. I'm so I'm so honored. She crafted and administered partnerships that secured over ten point five million dollars in funding from a variety of private and corporate resources, and she helped design and administer more than 150 global programs that directly engaged 500,000 people into action and almost one million people indirectly through the creation of global strategies. She has an amazing select client list. You should really go check out everything that she's done, all that she does, all that she is, and you're going to get to hear some amazing information from her today. So, Desiree, again, I want to welcome you to the show. I'm so honored to have you on. I know the listeners are excited. I want you to tell us first what it is, like from your perspective, that you do and why you do it. Great. Well, one, thank you so much for for having me, inviting me. I really appreciate appreciate that. Um, why do I do what I do? So, actually, <laughs> our real is probably close to thirty years of experience, and not twenty anymore. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm. I've reached that. I'm getting closer to that hump. But um, I've always. From the time I was 21, I started working with nonprofits and, and management with nonprofits and um, did everything from running day camps to overnight camps um, and uh, international development work as well. I was really fortunate um, that had a career that took me through working with some of the largest nonprofits, Habitat, Rotary, um, where I got to manage huge budgets and give away lots of money for humanitarian projects, but also then was able to kind of translate that into work within the global um, for-profit field and did that for quite a few years. And then um, decided that I wanted to go back into the nonprofit world and, and made that leap. But when my daughters, I'm a single mom, when my daughters were getting older, I knew that I needed to figure out what was next for me. And so um, while my oldest was in, started college and my youngest was still in high school, I started my business, the Attaway Group. And so that has evolved over the years um, from basically doing, uh, which I still do, kind of organizational development consulting with with, with nonprofits and, and small businesses, to really evolving around my love for difficult conversations. So one thing that all throughout my career is I was the one that was ready to have the difficult conversation with whoever needed to be had. Because for me, building the relationships and moving the work forward was the most important thing. So let's say what needed to be said. Let's do what needs to be done. We can do the work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, so... I, that that's what I became known for. Like I was the one that was willing to have the conversation. So when I started work for myself and I would be doing this work within organizations, I realized that I kind of became the job whisperer. I would help people leave <laughs> who needed to leave. And I would help them leave with dignity. It's a it's a great skill that I have. Like if I know yeah. that I, you know, you've been this isn't the job for you. Like this is not your work. Um, let's figure right. out how to get you out of here. And that message is a That's lot great. easier sometimes coming from right out from a third party as opposed to your boss. So I became oh, yeah. I had this yeah. reputation, right? Right. And so I had this reputation 
of really helping people leave roles and jobs with dignity. And what Mm -hmm. I realized as I was having these conversations is that really if organizations had more conversations around race, class, and gender, really important conversations, it would have saved them lots of money. I tell people all the time, organizations pay me lots of money to come in and say things that should have been said 10 years ago. Exactly. (laughs) That's wonderful. Right? So I'm like, yeah, you can pay me to come in and say something that really should have been said 10 years ago, but I'll come in there and we'll do it and figure it out. So, um, and then as my work has evolved, a lot more of my actual clients, people who've hired me were um, activists and activist organizations. Um, and people mm-hmm. who are on the ground organizing around really important social justice issues. And so I became, I began to really kind of focus a lot, too, on how do I help organizations that are doing critical, important work in the streets, on the ground, in our communities, how do I help them do that work better, more efficiently? How do I help to right. broaden their network? bring in more money, more resources for them to do that. And I do mm-hmm. that. And I do individual coaching. And a lot of my individual coaching clients are people who are in the nonprofit world or who are, are a lot of them are actually activists who I, I do a lot of coaching with. And then there mm-hmm. is my training and really the core of what I do, no matter what work I do for people, I always do it with an intersectional lens. I always think about, Who's the marginalized voices within this institution? In what ways is this institution, just by its tradition, language, norms, expectations, really setting up oppressive systems? And how do I help people mm-hmm. navigate that? And so that's where I spend a lot of my time and energy working. Well, and let me say, I've got to, I've got to go backward to what you were talking about about being the job whisperer. First of all, I love that term, but. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that you were able to put it into that perspective that this is not your work. This isn't your sole mission. This isn't your life purpose. This isn't what you are meant to be doing. You're on, the, you're on a path that doesn't fit. I think that's beautiful. And I know this isn't really where we're going with the show today, but I don't want to stay on this very long because I want to get to the other stuff. But, but I just love that you said that because I know there are listeners out there that struggle in different jobs in different careers, and they call in every time. We have Elizabeth Harbin on. She's a psychic that I have on uh, the first of the month every month. And, and a lot of the questions are geared toward career and job. And a lot of people get stuck in jobs in the same way they get stuck in relationships. You know, sometimes people just aren't That's a fit. Right. Well, sometimes jobs just aren't a fit. And, and you keep trying to make it work, and it's still going to just keep being disappointing, just like, you know, a relationship exactly would be right. if you're trying to force it. I love that you say that because that's pointing people toward their true, genuine life path, like their their soul mission, and it helps them dig a little deeper to find out what it is because we're not put on this planet just to go make money and pay our bills. We're put on this planet for a much bigger purpose, and part of that comes in our careers because our careers are, are – we're supposed to be doing, you know, what our life purpose is and our passion is and our, and that's how we shine. That's how we make our light bright. And that's obviously what you have done and you're trying to help other people do the same. And I love that. So big kudos yeah, and I, and I've been I love in jobs it. where I just had, I, yeah, I've been in jobs where I had to do it right because of right. Me too. Me too. money, right? Because I yeah. have children. To yeah. feed. And so I've worked those jobs. Sure. And there, are, there are 
so killing. And yeah. and like like relationships, like marriages, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like anything else, sometimes we stay too long. But something That's that right. fit us five years ago doesn't fit us anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to right. let those things go. Right, exactly. And I love that you yeah. put it in that perspective too because we, you know, same in relationships too, right? Sometimes people will stay in a marriage, not necessarily because they think they belong there, but because for whatever reason, it's suiting something that they need. But once you can find a way to fulfill that need elsewhere, I mean, we're talking about healthy needs like financial situation or whatever. Exactly. Uh, once you can yeah. find a way to once you can find a way to fulfill that need on your own, then you need to move on. And the same thing with a job. I mean, obviously, we've all had to take jobs. Well, maybe not all of us, but certainly. I can speak for myself and you can speak for yourself. We've had to take jobs that we didn't necessarily want to do because we had to, you know, have a, the, the money to survive. But as soon as we could find a different way to do what we needed to get done, then we move on. Because staying there long past that, like you said, will burn you out. And that when I, when I say burnout, I'm not just talking about the level of depression. I'm talking about the light within you burns out. And you don't want that because that does lead to depression and it does lead to just, you know, having this negative energy because it's no longer filled with that light that you, that you always are filled with if you're living your passion. And so I love it. I love that you do that. Now, I also know that you said that you go in and you have these difficult conversations, conversations that need to be having, you know, like 10, 20 years ago. Now I can say from places I've worked before, I've seen, and I'm sure anybody listening has experienced this, you've seen some conversations that needed to happen. And, like, no one, none of the managerial staff was willing to do it. And as an employee, employee, you're just sitting there going, pick Mm -hmm. me, I'll do it. You know, I would love to say that. I would love to say that at the top of my lungs. I'm good at that. And and the fact that you come in and do it, that's so awesome. So so give me an example or, you know, even talk about what the difficult conversations are. Some people may not necessarily know what we are talking about, but certainly give me an example of something that you've either done or, or what you might do so that listeners understand that. So maybe someone's been running a program um, for 10 years. And so the first five mm-hmm. years, when they came in, it was great, right? Like they ran the program really well. We saw growth, the, the, you know, all the things that were happening. They met all the milestones and goals. Right. Then circumstances have changed. Maybe external circumstances. Um, so I'll give an example. Maybe somebody ran a gym and they did a great job of it for years and years and years. And then that was wonderful. But then four new gyms moved into town. Right. At a cheaper rate. <laughs> yeah. And now this person who up to now had done a fantastic job, it's not going so well anymore. Right. And, and it's every, year after year we're seeing this decline, we're seeing this loss. But nobody is saying, hey, because the reality is the skills that it took that that person had in the beginning of, of this career are not the skills mm-hmm. that it takes now to be competitive against four other gyms. Right. Right. right, that means, you know, looking at programming, that means better marketing, that means all these things. And this person, no matter how much they have been fantastic and wonderful, actually does not have those skills. Right, yeah. So what's going to eventually happen if we don't figure out how to help that person transition out of that role is there's going to reach a point where that person's actually going to get fired. Exactly. And I'm like, no, let's help you transition out. 
Let's really look and see the skills that we need. Let's rewrite that job description. And I love let's that. hire the right person. Mm-hmm. I love that. Right? Let's yeah. acknowledge everything that person did that brought us to this point. But now we mm-hmm. just need a different skill set. Right. And I love yeah. that. And it, and again, that's just like, you know, not to keep putting it with this analogy, but I think we can always apply, you know, anytime we're looking at relationships and jobs, we apply one to the other. Like when you're trying to find the right fit, it's the same way as like when you apply for a job. And the same way when you're talking about mm-hmm. jobs, I think we can look at it through relationship lens. So it's the same way there. Like you can thank someone for the lessons they brought you for the five years you dated them, but it doesn't work anymore. So now you move on, right? That's it's right. the same thing here. You can I, thank this person right. for what they've brought you. That's wonderful. I love it. Yeah, so those are the kind of difficult conversations I have. You know, I, you know, may have a conversation with a place that has all white leadership and all people of color at frontline staff are getting paid way, you know, way less than everybody else and say, hmm, do you all have any idea what this looks like externally when physically your offices are separated and physically, you know, like all things? And they're like, wow, oh. right? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, look, can we can we move the leadership from being on the top floor and bring some of those offices downstairs so one, the frontline staff people can see them more often and actually build a relationship with them, and two, so that this literally does not look like a friggin' plantation. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you yeah. go there. I love that you say yeah. that because it's exactly what yeah. it is. And it happens everywhere. And, we, you know, we had this conversation. I'm going to let the listeners know. We had a conversation before the show started about how, you know, we were talking about Desiree asked me where is it I'm coming from, you know, where where am I located, and I'm saying West Texas. And, of course, you know, just always giving people a little little background when we're talking about this particular topic. Today I was like, well, you know, this is a show I'd love to broadcast, you know, on loudspeakers throughout the entire region uh, because it's something I feel is certainly needed. But then, of course, I had to stop myself and say, of course, these these situations happen everywhere. It just feels more concentrated here. And then Desiree said, no, it's just a little bit more overt (laughs) there. But it happens everywhere, and it's 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 something that happens everywhere. Everywhere, exactly. And these work situations where you have this hierarchy that's so much more than just the hierarchy, it is exactly what you just said. It's like, it's like legalized slavery. It's like you've got this, you know, the, the white man on the top floor and handling all the big money, making all the big money, and then you've got these people underneath that are minority groups working for them, literally segregated, <laughs> like exactly yeah. what you said. And that, that happens all the time. And we have, as a world, as a society, some people can just see that. We're so desensitive. Don't even notice that that's what that is. And you're not able, to, or you're able to not only notice it, but to, you know, because there may be other people noticing it, but they're not going to say it. You're the person that's going to say, hey, this, do you realize what this is? Do you realize what this looks like? Do you realize what you're doing? I mean, how do you expect this to work out any other way than it is right now? You're oppressing people. So, of course, and, there's not going to be the morale. Externally, what does that say to the community about who you are? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And where you can go, what your dream, what dreams you can accomplish, and who you can be. And I mean, it's yeah. I'm so glad that you do that. That you have that conversation <laughs> and you go there. So let me That's ask. But I do. Now, you know, <laughs> yes, 
good for you. See, that's the kind of light we need right there. That's the light that we need in the world. And so I'm going to say when I've been promoting this, I've been talking about the fact that, you know, we're having a difficult conversations about gender, race, and class. Now, I say that because what I've been noticing as of late and what's been highlighted uh, on social media and, again, Desiree and I were talking before the show about how this has always been. This is not something that's just new. It's not like racism just popped up. I mean, like, this is stuff that's going on forever. And people that, I mean, you know, racism, sexism, all this stuff, this has been going on forever. And if you're a woman, you notice it. And if you're a minority woman, you really notice it. And if you're just a minority, you notice all this. I mean, you've just been in, you've been aware. You know, it's something that's been going on that we've all been experiencing and then all of a sudden it's just more highlighted, more uh, where people who haven't experienced it see it. You know, they're seeing it. And so they're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know this existed. Well, either you weren't paying attention yeah. or it wasn't affecting you. And that's what's called privilege. And we've been talking about white privilege just a whole lot. And the reason is because it, it, it exists. It's real. And, and yet it makes people so uncomfortable and they get so defensive And so it's something that I really wanted to bring to the show today is the difficult conversations and the difficulty in it is not speaking it because I, like you, Desiree, can say just about anything that comes to my mind. I don't have a problem talking. (laughs) But the reception, the reception of it is where the difficulty comes in because on the other end of it, especially when you talk about race, gender, class, then of course you have that white privilege, that, that situation brings about quite, a defensive reaction. So I cannot imagine how that works when you're talking to companies, you know, or executive leaders or something like that, how that, how no. that, ends yeah. up, how that ends up happening or playing out. So I wanted to kind of, first of all, let you have a chance to talk to the listeners about what we need to be talking about, not only in our workplaces, but in our lives. What, what, what conversations do we need to be broaching? What do we need to be talking about and how do we do it? Yeah. So I am I don't I don't know if you know this but I've been for the past year and a half I've been having conversations on race with total strangers. And oh, um, I did not know that. Love it. Yeah, so I've been sharing it on Facebook like every quarter I'll do a post saying, "Hey, you know, do you do you like me? Do you think people want to talk to me about race, class, or gender?" And I it's 30 minutes and I have four or five question prompts. I'm not writing notes, I'm not recording, I'm not writing a book or a blog post. I actually do it for a few reasons. One is to hold space with another human. Um, The Mm -hmm. second is to bear witness to people's stories. And the third is to model what I think is a way that we can be having difficult conversations about the most important things with people in our sphere of influence. And I so love it. I've had hundreds I've had hundreds of these conversations with literal literal strangers and they've been amazing. Um and so one of the things that keeps popping up from my conversations is that no one ever talked about race when people were growing up. Like you you didn't mention it. You either ignored it or at most this is for people who are white or at most you got the mm-hmm. everybody's the same colorblind right. speech. But right. there were there there are very few white households where there were some real conversations around race or or the word right. privilege, right? 
Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah. and then when I talk to people who are from marginalized communities or who, who navigate the world with marginalized identities, they will tell you their parents told them, like my mother told me, from a super early age, all the things I needed to know to navigate the world. Right. So part of what happens, um, which is why I have difficult conversations, is I do two things. One, it's actually teaching us to be braver. Because I actually push back when people say they want to be safe. I'm like, no, right. I yeah. need you to be brave. I need you to be brave. Yeah, there you go. We will be respectful, absolutely respectful. Right. But learning happens not in a safe place. You tell me one thing you truly learned when you was just uber safe and wrapped in, you know, a you know pillow and, and white fluffy clouds. Yeah. Like, real learning comes from falling down and making mistakes and being humble and getting back up and trying it again. And so that's, that's right. And, and, and classes that I teach and the work that I do, I talk to people about working with them and creating brave spaces to have the hard conversations and to teach us how to continue to have these conversations because it's never just a one-time thing. It's a way of being. And so, right. um, so, so, so I have these conversations, and they've been fascinating. And one thing that comes up time and time again is the fragility issue. Um, so we've organized society to reproduce and reinforce our racial interests and perspectives. We have systematic and institutional control that allow those people who are white in, in this country to live in a social environment that protects and insulates them from race-based stress. Right. And, and people live their life insulated from race-based stress. I, as a black woman, have lived my life with race-based stress. I know how to handle it. It comes at me a million times a day. I can navigate it. I know what to accept and take and what to let slide off my back. All the things, right? Right. Because that's just right. in the world I've lived in. So, um, you know, so one of the things people always say, you know, is we're all the same. Race is just a social construct. That's very true. But it's a social construct that has material and psychological consequences to the people that exactly. live it. Mm-hmm. Right? And we live right. in a racialized and, world. Right. And let me interject this really quickly and say on that note, because I just want to make this clear, I can't stress that piece enough. The whole we are all the same thing. I don't know how many times when I've talked about feminism or I've talked about racism or I've talked about white privilege and people have jumped on me and said, Every time you label things, you're separating us. You're dividing us. It's creating more division. We're already it's like, separated. No. Well, exactly. It's, it's not what, when we talk about it, it's like, it is like, no, it's like, a, let, let me say this from a counseling perspective because my background is in that and I work with addiction. If I'm going to help a drug addict, an active drug addict, I'm not going to uh, go around calling him an addict. Or her, you know, I'm not going to go around calling mm-hmm. uh, him something else or something that's more comfortable <laughs> or something that's more. That's right. No, I'm going to it. say, I'm going to say you're a drug addict. That's what you are. And so let's deal with that because until we call it what it is, we can't deal with it. And My to me, when people says, say, 
Go ahead. My aunt always said, we have, we have to call the thing the thing. Exactly. We have to, exactly. We have to call the thing the thing. Exactly. And when, and when people tell me, you know, you're dividing us, I'm like, no, I'm trying to, when we talk about these things, it's, it's an, in an effort to heal it. But if it's not discussed and we just pretend it isn't there, that divides us. That is what will kill us. That divides us. We have to talk about it. It has to be brought up. It has to be discussed. That's where healing happens. And just like you said earlier, growth and healing don't happen in your comfort zone. You have to get out of that in order to do it. If you're uncomfortable, good. That's where you need to be because <laughs> that's where the good yeah. stuff can happen. When you're well, comfortable and safe, nothing will. You have will. a choice. That's right. That's where you yeah. have a choice when you're uncomfortable. So, so this is the, there, there are a couple of fallacies that we, that we start off with. One is that we're born equal. What we are born mm-hmm. is open without right. bias and assumptions or questions. But we're not mm-hmm. born equal because just by literally being gendered in this country, from the moment a baby is born, we've said mm-hmm. some of you have power and more power than others. Right. Right? Right. And, and you're so, going to be in pink and you're going to be in blue. Yeah, they're, they're already right. separated by color. I mean, you know, like we're, immediately we're all, by right. what the colors we put on them. Right. And so we're born with social identities, and they predepose us to unequal roles. From that moment, right. we are all born with different sets of power structures behind us, and that's reality. And so in mm-hmm. the beginning, you know, we're born, no decision, no choice. But we're born into two groups, either a dominant group or a subordinate, sometimes called target, target group. And the assumptions, the norms, what's acceptable, all of that is built around the dominant group characteristics. So what's the dominant group in this country? That is men, that is white people, mm-hmm. that's middle and upper right. class people, that's able-bodied right. people. That's middle-aged people, that's heterosexual people, and that's Christian people. Exactly. Right? So those are the norms. I was born to none of those norms. <laughs> right? right? Like, so, yeah. So, 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 so I've had to learn to navigate in these norms. Of course, you know, most people don't, of the dominant group, they don't think about those norms. They'll say, oh, I'm a mom. I'm a healer, I'm a, you know, I'm a friend, I'm an environmentalist. Right, <laughs> because you don't have to think about the norms because they're already, right. the world is built for you to navigate it. So you for get you. to you exactly. can study and focus on all these other great things that you want to be in this world. And you can give those right. things your energy. Right. right. So, exactly. um, so part of where all this comes from is that we are socialized into deeply, um, a deeply internalized sense of superiority and entitlement, those in the dominant position. Mm -hmm. And this is what people say, not me, and I'm going to push you and say, yeah, you are. It's actually unconscious. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you are, because it's unconscious. You have no idea. And you know this because Mm -hmm. you watch television shows where everybody looks like you. You watch movies where predominantly people look like you. And if you think I'm playing, right. I'm gonna. I want you to ask your your viewers, your listeners, name me one Native American actor and name me one Native American actress exactly. who's been in, a movie, in the movies or on television. 
Yeah. And uh, I, I can I tell you right name. now, nobody nobody has an answer. Yeah, exactly. I don't either. I, and I, I mean, I am half native, and I can't name one. Can't name a thing one. Right? Because it, yeah. Right. So, so these are things that happen to us unconsciously. We've been imprinted with so much, with so many lessons from our parents, from schools, from media, from music, from teachers, from all, from health, from all the things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so right. what we've learned and what research has shown, like when I use the term white fragility, that's actually an academic research term. It wasn't made up. Right. And that people yeah. found that it became clear over time that white people have an extremely low threshold for enduring any discomfort associated with challenges to their racial worldview. Yeah. Agreed. Again, people will be like, that's not true about me. How many times <laughs> for how many years have black people said, you know what, the police are actually dangerous to us. Mm-hmm. People get stopped and harassed by the police. And, and, again, I'm coming from a family of cops and sheriffs in the South. Right. Um, right. But that does not mean are there good cops? Are there good individuals? Yeah. Systematically. Of Policing has not been because it is built around these norms that fit these expectations of the dominant culture. And if you divert from those in any way, you are seen as suspect. Right. Right. And so, um, and, and, and just so people know, this is not like good or bad evil, good, evil, this is like what we want racism to be. And racism is actually about systems and institutions. It's not about individuals. Exactly. Right. And so we have a and culture and a world that has been built to make culture's life easy and, and mm-hmm. awesome to navigate. Not saying that right. you're not poor people, not saying it's not hard, not saying your husband didn't leave you or you lost your job, or all those millions and millions of things that happen to you. Bad things happen to good people. We have hardship. Nobody said life was easy. There's no expectation that it's always going to be bubblegum and fun. But it is definitely different and Mm -hmm. harder to navigate when you put race into it and or gender into it. And let me give you this so that you can touch on this for a moment. Because how many times have I had that conversation with someone and their response is, well, I've experienced reverse racism. And that's exactly right. I always try to clarify that racism cannot exist in that way. Racism is is systemic. It's systematic. It's institutional. It's something that can only happen from the dominant down. It doesn't, it's not something that the, the oppressed can be racist toward. Right. You know, that doesn't work like that. That's not the way it works. It doesn't even make any sense. So it's, right. I, we need to clarify that for the listeners that that doesn't exist. Yes, exactly. Can you can be, be prejudiced. Right. Can, you can right. be prejudiced. Can a black person say, I hate right. white people or I'm prejudiced towards white people? Sure. Absolutely. Or black people are prejudiced yeah. towards other brown people, right, towards Hispanic, whatever. That, that right. is real. And that happens across every intersection, every identity. Right. But for someone to be racist, you have to have power, power over. Exactly. Exactly. And so, Thank you. And, 
And so, you know, when people are like, there's reverse racism, it's like, no, it's not. It's just Mm -hmm. not. No. That's exactly not how it works. Because racism, sexism, transphobia, you know, Islamophobia is all about who has the power. Exactly. And who doesn't. So, so there's one thing, and, and you're in, and I love when people prove me wrong, but the majority of white people live, live, grow, play, learn, work, and die primarily in social and geographic racial segregation. Agreed. Right? And that's because that, that goes back to systemically. Who was able to get mm-hmm. loans? When people, they redlined, where do houses come, you know, all the things. Who owns the exactly. property? Yeah. Why is that? That goes back historically, right? And so, right. and so now there's segregated communities, absolutely segregated right. communities. And, yep. again, we, so, so the majority of white people live, grow, play, learn, love, work, and die primarily in social and geographic racial segregation. I ask people all the mm-hmm. time, look at your, look at your um, personal circle. How many of those are people that don't look like you or think like you? And I don't mean just people right. that you know from work. I mean people that you go to each other's homes, you go to each. My best friend and I call it the wedding test. Who yeah. You Did you yeah. Who's at your wedding? <laughs> right? Right? That's because a good way to do it. Yep. That tells you if you really are in the community and have deep relationships with folks. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, we look and we see how we live our lives. The Washington Post did a great, um, did some great research, and it said if everybody only had 100 friends, white people, of their 100 friends, 99% of them would be white. Right. Of a black person's hundred friend, like eighty nine percent of them were, were were black. Right. And there were there was about, you know, six, seven percent white. And that is because non white people have to learn to navigate in the white world to survive. It's how we get promotions, it's how we get jobs, it's how we stay safe right. and, and in all the way in the community. Right? And so mm-hmm. I know exactly. how to navigate into white spaces. Easy. I can do it in my sleep. I've been doing it my entire <laughs> life. But, but, white, but, but white people feel really uncomfortable, a lot of them, not all, when they have to navigate all black spaces or all brown spaces. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And they and so, steer even to like, the point that they steer clear of neighborhoods. Right? They see her clear exactly. going into oh, certain neighborhoods. I'm not driving through yep. that neighborhood. I'm not buying anything in that neighborhood. I don't want my kids to go yep. to that school. These are all the mm-hmm. things. These are all the ways that we stay separate. Right? So this right. is the other thing that I say to people, and um, Dr. Um, Angelo, Dr. Uh, Beverly D'Angelo, is a uh, Robin D'Angelo is a uh, is a woman who works on this uh, in terms of fragility in white people. She um, she made a statement that um, white people lose nothing of value by having no cross racial relationships. 
you can live your entire life and be like, I never really was close to a brown person or a black person or anybody other than white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're not taught that that's a law. Right. Again, unconsciously, the whiter your schools and neighborhoods are, the more likely in this culture we see them as good. Not individuals see them as good. Culturally, and the more likely, we see those I mean, as good. And, and this is, and this is an honest statement. The more likely they are that they're affluent. You know, the the more exactly. white the school and, is, and more that, likely it is that it's rich. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So this is so you when I said these messages superiority, that's why. That's how that circulates all around. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we talked right. about a little bit was kind of right the good bad binary. So we think in our mind, white supremacists are horrible, racist people. And we think that people are either racist or not racist, which is not true. Yeah. No. Right? Agreed. There's degrees. There's degrees. There's degrees, Mm -hmm. right? There's degrees of understanding. Like, just because you're not actually calling somebody a racial slur does not mean that when you walk past them, you haven't clutched your purse. That's exactly right. I said that the other day. I said so, I told somebody who was saying to us, swearing up and down, he wasn't racist. And I said, just because you haven't ever lynched someone doesn't mean you're not racist. I mean, and that's the truth. Just because you that's haven't put on a hood and walked around and burned a cross in somebody's yard, that doesn't mean that you're not racist. And you have to, people have to start see, stop seeing that as like someone telling you that you're evil because that's not what they're saying. They're calling out that's right. a behavior or a thought process. And we all need to be calling that out within ourselves and within, and, so, and toward other people. Yeah. So going back to calling a thing a thing, I actually mm-hmm. very rarely use the word racism. I actually use the word white supremacy because yeah. it is Good. a hierarchy that we live in. It is a right. hierarchy. And white rich men are at the top, and then everybody else is kind of straddled from the top to the bottom. Right? Mm-hmm. It is a hierarchy. But when I use that term, when I say white supremacy, oh, my God, <laughs> people wig out, even people who are close friends of mine. So I, I mentioned this to a good friend of mine. I said, I think I'm never going to use the word racism again. I'm just going to use the term white supremacy. And she wigged out. And I said, she said, if it was coming from anybody but you, I'd, I'd, I'd freak out right now. And I said, why? And she said, because that word just, brings up all kind of ugly things for me. It makes me, you know, think about skinheads and people that burn down, like that burn cross, right? And I said, mm-hmm. I didn't call anybody a white supremacist. Right. Actually, I think those people exactly. are white separatists. I think they're actually white separatists. Right. I said, I never called mm-hmm. anybody a white supremacist. I said, we live and work and navigate a system, a hierarchy of white supremacy. Right. But I know exactly. no that when people hear that word, it goes back to this good, bad, which, again, we've been told is how to think about it. But racism exactly. does actually does not occur in an individual act. It is that larger system that we all participate in. Every last one. Right. I participate in it. You participate in it. All of us participate exactly. in this system. Right, mm-hmm. and when we focus on individual acts, um, 
the analysis that we use is how do we use this act to challenge the larger system? Not that, oh, my God, you know, Desiree is a horrible person. But how do we say that thing that happened, right? So people have been calling in and leaving bomb threats at the JCC. Let's talk about the larger, that we have Mm -hmm. a country now that it's okay to literally be an anti-Semite. Exactly. Exactly. It's right? been emboldened. Yeah. That's, it's been emboldened now. That's, that's, the, that's yeah. the larger piece, right? Right. So when they catch whoever these nut jobs are who do that, good. But for me, let's have a discussion about what is going on in this country that we have literally emboldened people mm-hmm. to say all the things whenever they want to say them. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, the other thing that I always talk to people about, which is a real critical issue, is individualism. Whites are taught mm-hmm. to see themselves as individuals rather than part of any racial group. I am never taught to see myself as anything but black and part of a larger group. And so that, I think, helps to people to deny that racism is structured into the fabric of society. Um, because you see yourself as different. Well, because one person did that, Desiree, that's not me. <laughs> right? Like how many times after the election and, and we were, people were like, oh, when you look at the statistics, white women voted for Hillary. Not me. Like all the white women jumped up. Not me, not me, not me. And I'm like, simmer down. <laughs> okay, we're using the royal white women, right? The royal, yeah. the big, the big W. Right? But exactly. that's where it comes from, because everybody sees themselves as individual and different from other white people, and everybody expects to be treated as such. All right, mm-hmm. and it is oh, intolerable. Yeah. It is intolerable. For some white folks to be like, no, you don't label me as that. Mm-hmm. I am not that. And I always kind of push back with that. Um, you know, I'm like connectedness and community and wholeness are really the cornerstones of liberation. And exactly. Because it's really about all of us together being free. So I always ask people, who's the most marginalized in your community? Who's the the one that's most in danger? Who's Mm -hmm. that? Because those are the voices that need to be at the center. Because when they're okay, we're all okay. So maybe in my community, that is a trans undocumented person Mm -hmm. of color. As long as we can keep that trans person safe and healthy and whole, then I know I'm getting what I need. Exactly. That's a great point. So I always ask people, who's the most um, vulnerable in your community? That's who we need to find, and that's who we need to protect and defend and love. Right. Right. Um, And then the last bit, that I always talk to people about is this entitlement 
to racial comfort. And we mentioned this a little bit earlier. But in dominant positions, um, dominant culture are almost always racially comfortable. Yeah. And because that has happened most of people's lives, they've been unchallenged and have unchallenged expectations, right? So mm-hmm. while so my advice to people is, you know, build up your arm. Build up that muscle for tolerance for racial discomfort. Right? Mm-hmm. Don't always leave a conversation. Sit with it. Be uncomfortable. Right? right? Because what happens is we blame the person who gives us the message. You know, mm-hmm. like, how dare you come in here and rock my world and say something that I really didn't want to hear right now. So <laughs> we, we penalize people. We do this in institutions and in communities and our families. We penalize people, we retaliate against them, we isolate them, we refuse to continue to be engaged with them. Right. So as long as you and more time- say you want to engage about it, then guess what? It's never going to change. Exactly. Exactly. And, and more times than not, at least in my own experience and what I've seen in, in just counseling with people, is that if it strikes a chord, if it gets an emotional charge, it's because there's some truth to it. <laughs> there's something, you yeah. know, underneath there you don't want to look at. And, I mean, and like I said, I mean, that can either be from something in your past, maybe not something that you feel now, but something from your past, or something that you yourself aren't sure of because you haven't felt comfortable enough to even check that area of you. And so when someone else comes yeah. in and says, hey, this is what this is, I mean, it's no different to me. If you're coming, let's say you're coming from a religious perspective. If you're sitting in a church and a preacher says something and it hits you a certain way, you know he's talking to you. So when somebody comes That's in right. and says this to you, I think that emotional charge is your key to, hey, this is, we need to look at this and sit with it, like you yeah. said, and look at, look at it. And sit with it. And so, so those are the things. And we're all in this system, every last one of us. And we work in oppressive systems because the norms and the standards and the regulation, right, come from dominant culture. I posted something on Facebook today, and I said, you know, white privilege began in the U.S. Constitution when they said only white landowners could vote, white Mm -hmm. man landowners, right? And that white man landowner to this day is still revered in this country. Yep. Exactly. Revered, right? Get some land, buy mm-hmm. your house, own it. Like that is that's that's the picture we paint for what happiness and prosperity is for this country. So that's right. So this stuff is ingrained in us, and it's built in all the way. So I, so that's that's how we're socialized. But I also also talk about the cycle of liberation. So what does it take to break free of oppressive systems? Right? What does that look like? And at the core of your work core of your family, at the core of your community, at the core of your institutions, at the core of your systems should always be the following things. And this is from the work of Dr. Bobby Haro. At the core of liberation, because you can't break out of any oppressive system without self-love, self-esteem, balance, joy, support, 
security and some kind of spiritual base. Mm-hmm. And that. that is what always has to be at the core of this work. When we're talking about fighting racism, when we talk about fighting sexism, when we talk about fighting transphobia, when we talk about Islamophobia, in the work that we do, whether that happens on one-on-one, if you and I are having a conversation in front of a group or I'm working with an organization, this is the, this is the center of that work, self-love, right. self-esteem, balance, joy, support, security, and spiritual base. So, you know, you hear people talk about we got to fight the resistance. We don't, we don't win without these things. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody wins without those things at the core of what we do. Because if we have those things at the core of what we do, then what the person up the street who I don't know, what they do matters to me. Right. Exactly. It doesn't matter if I have health insurance. Not only that, but it matters if if their kids don't have it as much as it matters if my Mm -hmm. kids don't have it. Right. So one of the fallacies that goes back to that individualism is that your vote is just your vote for you. Mm -hmm. We vote for the collective. Exactly. Say that again because I think we just went through a situation where people forgot all about that in November. We vote for the collective. Exactly. Right? We vote for the collective. Not just whether or not my family gets it, but does all, do the majority of families get it? Do the right. least of the amongst us get it? That's exactly. how we vote. That's what a democracy is about. Mm-hmm. And so, again, at the core of that work, at the core of our decision-making process, should be these things to guide us, to guide how we fight oppressive systems. Mhm. I love that. And I hope everyone out there wrote yeah. it down because I did. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as I said before we got on the show, I know we're going to have to have you on again. See, we're coming up on five minutes left now. I told you the hour flies. Um, so I know that we'll have to have you on the show again, but I, I, I want to highlight something that you said about uh, the individualism. And that's a, that's a thought I hadn't even, you know, I hadn't thought about a lot of the things you said. But that's certainly one that stood out for me. I took a lot of notes during this, during this show because I knew I was going to be excited. I, I absolutely love everything that you shared. But I had never really given that any thought. And that is definitely something that I can see uh, one of the reasons that thing, that these uh, people pop up and say, well, no, that's not me. Well, I'm not like that. And so anytime you have a conversation where you say white privilege, then the white individualism kicks in and people go, wait, whoa, hey, no, I'm not privileged. You know, and like they jump in and it's like, wait, yes, you are because you are white. You may be an individual and you may have individual circumstances and you may have your own little unique things about you, but you're white. And so you and are experiencing white privilege. Yeah. I'm privileged because I'm a woman who's college educated in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm privileged in a, I right. my own business. I was able to, like, I'm privileged in a class, I'm privileged in a lot of ways. But, exactly. comma, I also know that when I walk down the street, my race is seen first, and that actually always mm-hmm. puts me in danger. Right. Exactly. Just like, 
you know, yeah. we talk about male privilege, we talk about class privilege, we talk about all of that, and so all of these things apply. And exactly. as you do, and as you do every day with companies and within your life and with, with, like you said, perfect strangers, we need to be doing this too. Having these conversations, these real conversations, sitting down with ourselves, not just other people, but first and foremost with yourself, <laughs> and having this conversation, doing a personal inventory and finding out what it is you feel, think, how you experience this, how, how uncomfortable you are. Because, again, the more uncomfortable you are, the better. That's, that's where you need to be. That's where the good stuff happens. But then also – Broaching these conversations with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your people that you don't know. Like you said, that's a great opportunity for us to really start healing this stuff. Because I'm a big believer in the fact that, as we said before, this isn't something that's just popped up. It's been here forever. People got in this, you know, little bubble of complacency, uh, thinking that everything was safe because we had President Barack Obama. Well, our president's black. Everything's fine. Like, we never really thought about, oh, wait, no, Trayvon Martin was killed while Barack Obama was president. You know, we had people being killed mm-hmm. all over the place because they were black. And we had a black president. It didn't change anything. It was just easier to pretend that everything was okay. But it isn't. Yeah. And we know that it isn't. And we know and, sexism is certainly and, there because we saw Hillary run for president. And we watched all the things that happened to her and all the things were said. So we know for a fact it's all been there. And now it's time. It's, it's coming up for a reason in my eyes. It's the universe saying, okay, here's a big gaping wound you guys have been ignoring. Let's deal with it. Let's do something. Let's yeah. make this change. And that's what we're going to have to do. As individuals I, and as I, communities, yeah. we're going to have to do it. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. So thank you for being, thank you for being that voice that – not only is doing that within your life and within your circle and within the communities and within the companies that you talk to, but for coming on the show today and helping us learn how to be a voice too, because you're doing great work. And I'm sure you hear that all the time, but you are a light in this world and I am just so grateful that you exist in it and so grateful that you are brave and that you're courageous and that you were born to do this because you you definitely were and, and you're helping people to be able to do this too. And that's just going to spread. And that's the, that's the wonderful thing. It's wonderful to have your own light, but it's so much more Mm. important to light others. So I love that you're doing that. Thank you for having me. And um, I appreciate folks listening. I know some of the things I said may not have been easy to hear, but I appreciate folks um, for, for, yeah, for sharing, sharing the time. Yeah, most definitely. And if you want to get in touch with Desiree Attaway, you can always go to her website. Again, that's DesireeAttaway.com. You can find that on the Facebook page or on this show page if you want to just look down on the bio. It'll be there. You can also uh, locate her on Twitter. It's at Desiree Attaway. You can email her, Desiree at DesireeAttaway.com. And she even has a phone contact information that you can find on her website. And, again, I want to thank you, Desiree, for being on. I want to thank everyone for listening. And, certainly, be sure to tune in on Saturday, 1 p.m. Again, it's a different day, different time. Saturday, 1 p.m. for the Portia Rufus, who, again, will be talking to us about her book, Your Book from God. Thank you, everyone. So wonderful that you tuned in, and I hope that you'll share this link with your friends. I'll be posting the link uh, on the Facebook page, so be sure to check there and share it with your friends so everybody can listen. Thanks again, Desiree. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you on Saturday.